Well, I'm glad um, uh, so many people have joined us after coming back from the lake. <laughs> um, I uh, came to uh, faith, as I've told many of you here before, in my 20s. And um, after coming to Christian faith, um, you know, hearing the saving good news of Jesus Christ for me, um, very quickly thereafter, uh, very shortly, I wanted to know how to sort of maintain my standing before God. Um, there is this anxiety inside of me, a, a sort of natural uh, impulse of these sort of intuitions of the world that we all often have that thought. Um, you know, how could I sort of climb Jacob's ladder up to God when I'd forgotten the fact that he'd already come down to me? Uh, and so I looked uh, to books for answers often and to other places too. But that's where partly how I came to faith was through, through reading books. So, of course, that's the place I went to look for. Remember, the question that I had in my mind is how to maintain my standing before God as uh, righteous and saved. Um, and uh, going to the bookstore, mo- you know, I tried some, but most of the sort of evangelical, loosely speaking authors sort of rubbed me the wrong way. Uh, it just wasn't the, kind, the, the, the sort of language used, just isn't my native language. I often joke with people, uh, people say cradle Episcopalian, I'm a cradle atheist, because then that's my, that's my, um, uh, my native language. And so it's often the sort of the typical language of evangelicalism sort of just rubs me the wrong way. And so when trying to answer the question about how to maintain my standing before God, I was attracted to Roman Catholic uh, authors, and not just Catholic, but similar types of authors um, or, or, or mentors uh, who are mystical or, or quote-unquote spiritual to find the answer. I remember, well, I, for a time I lived in Alexandria, Virginia. This kind of explains it because there's a Paulist bookstore uh, downtown, which is a Roman Catholic publishing house. And I remember buying there a book by Mother Angelica, who just died. She uh, lived up the road. Um, and uh, another author I was attracted to, partly because I worked for a time at Georgetown University, uh, which is a, uh, an Ignatian uh, a Jesuit school, was St. Ignatius of Loyola. Um, and there are others that I can't remember now. I've since sort of passed those books on or chucked them in the recycling bin. Um, and the, the message that I was often given was a need for a spiritual director, maybe, or to create a rule of life, uh, things of that nature. And I was failing. I was constantly failing, uh, even though I was trying uh, to maintain that steady diet that was beating me up, uh, I was not living up to it. And it's a similar story with the Colossians, uh, the, the Colossian Christians and um, the, the entire epistle, but especially we see that uh, here in our passage today. Um, and we're reading Colossians for a few weeks. We started last week with Deborah's sermon. We'll have it for a few more weeks. So if you want to study along with us in your Bible these weeks, uh, I commend that to you. The Colossians were led to faith by a pastor named Epaphras, Uh, who Paul describes in our passage today as our beloved fellow servant. You know, apostolically, he's been, uh, Paul has given him his blessing. He said, this guy is is okay. You know, I mean, he is orthodox preacher of the gospel. Uh, But despite coming to faith by Epaphras and his his pastoral ministry, the uh, Colossians are attracted to man-made philosophies that creep in. 
the, uh, the sort of three things that we get a sense of in the book of Colossians are um, ideas about what to eat, what to drink, and religious festivals, ritualism. That's part of why I talked about that in my opening uh, remarks today. Uh, just listen to this, not yet in our passage, but in the next uh, chapter two. Let no one pass judgment on you in question of food and drink and with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. So these teachers are advocating asceticism and outdated uh, Jewish observances that are no longer applicable because of the saving uh, work and life of Jesus Christ. But they're teaching these things for sort of uh, spiritual growth, or you get the sense that maybe the Colossians think that these things are necessary for uh, spiritual advancement. Remember, climbing the ladder uh, back up to God. Uh, and uh, this sort of trajectory of the faithful getting distracted is nothing new. Remember the dog and up, squirrel, squirrel, right? I mean, it just, we just easily, you, you can so quickly hear the message of Jesus Christ, the good news for you, it is finished, and squirrel, you know, just wanting to, to, to uh, be distracted by, by these sorts of teachings. Just think of uh, Israel. God warned Israel before entering the land of Canaan that they must drive out all the inhabitants of the land, a full, complete conquest, drive them out. Why? Because if they don't, they'll be uh, sort of, uh, they risk being attracted to the Canaanite false idols. And they fail at the full conquest, and this leads to uh, temptation and eventually syncretism. Uh, you know, lining up their beliefs with the beliefs of the Canaanite and molding together some, uh, some bastardized religion, which is often what we do with Christianity. Um, and we see a sort of similar uh, ritualism or sacerdotalism or mysticism, all these isms, in Anglicanism. Uh, in, our own, in the Episcopal Church, uh, we see these kinds of things. Many people come to Anglicanism looking uh, for stuff like ritualism or sacerdotalism uh, or mysticism, uh, and, and they'll find it. They'll, you, you'll find that if you want it, if you, 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 know, you can come to Anglicanism and look for those things, and you'll find it in our churches if you want. Uh, but those things are not native to our tradition. They, just, they simply aren't. Anglicanism is a product of the Protestant Reformation, and a lot of these, uh, these sort of ideas were not native to our denomination. They've been since shoehorned in. Uh, this, this has happened to all the denominations of the, the heritage of the Reformation, Lutheranism uh, and uh, Presbyterian Reformed faith as well. Uh, and it happens here. And so we either, the Episcopal Church often becomes either a way station for Roman Catholicism or Eastern Orthodoxy because we don't do it well. It's not native to our tradition. Uh, so we don't quite do it well. We don't have all the authority of the Pope. So for, you might stay here for a little while and get a taste of it before ready to go uh, to a place like Roman Catholicism or Eastern Orthodoxy. Or, or as I said, we begin to mold Anglicanism into something else, a sort of a broad ritualist sort of denomination when it comes to what we do on Sunday. Um, uh, the, one of the bishops who ordained me, the bishop who ordained me to a priest, uh, is Fitzsimon Allison, um, who uh, 
lived in the same town I did when we were in South Carolina. And I remember him telling me going to uh, one of the sort of what's called Anglo-Catholic institutions of the Episcopal Church that is much more into this sort of brand of, um, of the Christian faith. And the, the folks there asked him about a rule of life. Remember I talked about a rule of life. Uh, that's, that was all the sort of uh, the rave when I was in uh, seminary. Everybody wanted to have a rule of life, which is just sort of like written on a written piece of paper, like what I will do or a booklet uh, to live my Christian life. And they asked Fitz about a rule of life. And he said, you want a rule of life? Repent. <laughs> There's your rule of life. One word, repent, exclamation mark. And we do this all over the place, not just in uh, our denomination and, and Christianity and the faith. We do this with everyday rituals, with exercise. Just look at, and, and you might do this and it's great. It's great for your health, but just look at the cult of CrossFit. I mean, um, and people will even say that they own it. They own CrossFit as a sort of religion. And again, I'm not saying anything wrong inherently with exercise, but what we turn it into. Um, we do, I was a cyclist and... Uh, we would do that with cyclists. I remember the conversation about whether or not eventually to shave my legs. You know, I mean, that was an identity feature. And you're not a true cyclist, by the way, until you do so, no matter your gender. Um, and uh, any sort of thing, yoga, uh, you know, your diet, uh, your children. Oh, golly, Lord, save us. I mean, all the sort of rules and rituals that uh, revolve around child rearing these days, if you don't have kids yet, God help you. Um, I hope the blogs are friendlier uh, when you do, or you know your career and all the sort of the stuff that we put around it. There's so many other things that I could add to this this list. Um, well, back to my story of uh, Christian faith, of coming to faith and hearing the good news of of Jesus Christ, and um, and then quickly turning to how can I maintain my standing before God? What do I need to do in terms of behavior? I had a second conversion. I had a second conversion. Uh, praise be to God. By somebody giving me this book called On Being a Theologian of the Cross by this author, Lutheran author named Gerhard Faraday, which totally blew all this thinking out of the water. Blew all of this thinking out of the water for me. Uh, basically by saying that God is at work in places where I least expect him um, and where I did not want to find him uh, and that God might not be at work in the places where I expect to find him. Um, do, do you catch what I'm saying? That, that the places that are common sense or intuitive to us, that we think that's where God is, that the things that we need to do to maintain our standing before God or to find him there often... God isn't there. He's somewhere else in the sort of pain and suffering of the world, of the inability to live up uh, to everything. Uh, here are some examples of the, the, the book is an exposition of Martin Luther's what's called the Heidelberg Disputation, where it has this list of theses. And here are a couple examples of the theologian Martin Luther's theses that are exposited in this book. One is... Although the works of man always seem attractive and good, they are nevertheless likely to be mortal sins. So even the things that outwardly look good to us, they're likely to be uh, deadly sins because it comes out of this creature that is fallen inherently. And so no matter how good it looks on the outside, it's likely to be fouled up. And here's another one 
on the other side of the equation. Although the works of God are always unattractive and appear evil, there are nevertheless really eternal merits. That God often works in ways that are surprising to us and where we uh, think, well, that looks just plain disgusting. Uh, I don't expect to find God there. Just consider, for example, Isaiah chapter 53, where Isaiah um, gives us a glimpse in advance of what the Savior of the world will look like when he says, He had no form of majesty that we might look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, uh, he was despised and we esteemed him not. As Paul says, it is in this man that the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And the man that Isaiah describes as one that we esteem not, uh, you know, um, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, one who we despised. In him, the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, the place where we least expect to find it. The thing that looks like uh, evil uh, to, to all the world is the place where God was found. Uh, and the main point of Colossians is, is two things. First, it's about the preeminence of Christ, as we see here in our passage, and the sufficiency of Christ. He's not just a means towards an end of salvation. He's enough. He is the end in and of itself. You don't need to add to him. Uh, and so the preeminence is that he is the unlikely firstborn of all creation, and not only that, through him all things were created. Uh, he is the, the creator of the universe and the creator of you and me. Uh, and sufficiency has to do with not only does he reign supreme over everything, he's the, the big boss, uh, he's also the one who qualifies us to be blameless before God. Uh, Paul describes this work in Colossians as a sort of new act of creativity. That this is a new act of creativity, what he's doing in us. Look again at, uh, let's look again at Luther's Heidelberg Disputation that I brought up that Gerhard Ferdi talks about in that book that changed my life, um, about the Heidelberg Disputation. This time is at the very end of the book. The very last thesis of the book says this. The love of God does not find, but creates that which is pleasing to it. The love of God does not find, but creates that which is pleasing to it. In other words, you can climb the ladder all you want. God's not going to find you there. He's going to create the thing in you that is pleasing to him. We can't drum up what God finds pleasing he drums it up in us. The bad, the poor, the needy, and the lowly, the least expected. There's a, um, uh, a band that, you know, say whatever you will. Sometimes I'll bring things from the culture in here and you'll think, gosh, that's really profane. Or uh, in this case, it has to do with somebody uh, that you might know the story of. His question is in faith right now. Everybody's in the, the news about uh, what does he actually believe. Is this guy named Michael Gungor, who has a band called Gungor, a Christian sort of post-rock band. They wrote this amazing song several years ago called Beautiful Things. Beautiful Things. Some of you might know it. If you don't, 
go on YouTube and find the acoustic um, recording that they've done with Relevant Magazine. It will, if it doesn't bring you to tears, I don't know what will. Um, the, listen to some of the lines from this song that, that sum up lyrically all that I'm trying to talk about. All this pain, I wonder if I'll ever find my way. I wonder if my life could really change at all. All this earth, could all that is lost ever be found? Could a garden come up from this ground at all? And now addressing God, you make beautiful things. You make beautiful things out of the dust. You make beautiful things. You make beautiful things out of us. All around, hope is springing up from this old ground. Out of chaos, life is being found in you, in God. You make me new. You are making me new. Uh, it sounds so much better when you hear it sung, but there you have the lyrics the, the, behind the poetry of the song that um, uh, from this old ground, from this dust, uh, springs a garden uh, because of God's activity. Uh, he makes beautiful things even out of us. And this is the message for you. The message that Paul's trying to give to the Colossians about the, the new creative work that Jesus Christ does in us, um, that that which God desires, uh, he creates uh, in us in making us new. He makes you new. Uh, he makes beautiful things, not, of the, not out of the good soil, but out of even the dust, out of us. And so, you know, the question that was posed to Fitz, you want a rule of life, you know, what to do, just set your mind on this knowledge alone, uh, on this knowledge of God's activity in us and rejoice. Uh, and if that's not enough, well, then just listen to Fitz and repent. Amen. <laughs>